0: You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On October 18th, the Ash Center hosted an event titled White Nationalism, Media and Lessons from Charlottesville. Nicole Hemmer, Assistant Professor in the Presidential Studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, Tyler Bridges, a Shorenstein Center Fellow, journalist, and author of The Rise of David Duke, and Sato Grundy, Assistant Professor of Sociology and African American Studies at Boston University, comprised an expert panel moderated by Karen Finney, a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics and former senior advisor for communications and political outreach and senior spokesperson for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. This event was co-sponsored by the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Let's listen in.
1: So the title of our conversation is White Nationalism, Media and Lessons from Charlottesville. And I was just saying to our panel before uh, we started that where I'd like to start is actually, uh, it strikes me that there were plenty of signs and lessons long before Charlottesville that we didn't pay attention to. And I was really, in my own personal experience, I was a senior advisor on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Uh, and uh, some will remember that a, about a year before what happened in Charlottesville, she actually gave a speech on the alt-right um, and talked about it. In large measure, we did that because we felt that people weren't really paying attention uh, or wasn't getting a lot of media attention in terms of what was really happening at a lot of Trump's rallies. Uh, And then I had a number of reporters actually after Charlottesville who were writing about what happened who privately, they would not publicly admit it, privately admitted that they recognized they didn't give it uh, serious enough coverage. I think in part because at that point people couldn't imagine that that this was really happening in our country despite the fact that I would argue – that was pretty obvious if you were paying attention frankly with the start of the Obama presidency if not before where we saw an increase uh, of hate groups uh, pretty much immediately after uh, President Obama's election so actually Tyler I want to start with you because you wrote a piece obviously you're the biographer of David Duke um, and it's pretty shocking Uh, It was shocking to see him so Uh, alive and and well and and thriving uh, during the Charlottesville, what was happening in Charlottesville, but you wrote a piece during uh, the election when you went to a a Trump rally that um, David Duke uh, was present for and talked to... He wasn't present. Sorry, he wasn't But sorry. Uh, But you sort of wrote about uh, what you saw as sort of the line from David Duke to Donald Trump, and I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that just to get us started.
2: Sure. Um, thanks for all for showing up here today. So uh, I'm based in New Orleans, and um, I normally write for the newspaper there. It's called The Advocate, which is now the biggest newspaper in the state. But uh, in March, um, I think it was March last, last year, I went to a, a, a Trump rally, and I, I'm a bad journalist in the sense that I don't watch cable TV, um, so I hadn't been watching all these, these Trump speeches. And so it was a new experience for me when I went to get, go see him. And I was struck by how long the line was for people just to get in the arena. And, uh, and I was struck once I was inside the fervor of the crowd for Trump and, 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 there, and people standing and chanting his name and, and him selling uh, campaign paraphernalia. And I had never seen any of that before except David Duke when I covered him during his heyday in 1990 and 1991 in Louisiana. And I was very struck also by, by a big issue for Trump when he was talking about the wall. And uh, David Duke, back in the late 70s, when he was, in the, when he was uh, the Grand Wizard of the, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, he had something called the, Glan, the Klan border watch down in the, on, in the border uh, with Mexico. And, um, and other issues that Trump was talking about, really kind of sending a message. That was David Duke's message as well way back. Uh, when he was running for political <laughs> office in Louisiana, and I was very much struck uh, by the parallels. And then it was striking when uh, when Trump was first asked about about the, the the favorable words that David Duke gave for Donald Trump, and Trump initially said, "I didn't didn't really know him and not quite know," which was clearly not true. And then and then fast forward, you you, could, you see his comments uh, about uh, the events in in. Uh, in charlottesville and i think many people have come to the conclusion that that trump is um, you can certainly it can be debated whether he's a racist or not i think a lot of people would say he's not but he's clearly giving i think the phrase you used earlier was the dog whistle to the right but it's very striking that that david duke who for years has been very very critical of both political parties uh, the only political figure he had ever spoken favorably of, who was a national figure, was Pat uh, Pat Buchanan, mm. but uh, Duke spoke very favorably during the 2016 candidate uh, of Donald Trump.
1: Mm-hmm. Seda, so, one of the things about this conversation, you know, so, I mean, David Duke was pretty blatant back in the 90s. That it, it was about white supremacy. Right. And then we kind of, now it's sort of white nationalism slash uh, the alt-right, which yeah. as a, for me as a communications person, I feel like that's great spin. And that's yeah, exactly. nice reframing. Right? It sounds much more polite. But it really is, uh, again, this is about uh, a movement around white supremacy. And, and sort of, it struck me when I was reading Tyler's piece and just sort of again in the reaction, that people seem so surprised as if this had gone away. Right. And right. certainly, a lot of what you've written about is right. it's not only not gone away, it's very much alive and thriving, frankly, in this technology age. Right,
3: right. And it's extremely patternistic when looking at U.S. history, right? So we look at the scheme of our history, we look at particularly from Reconstruction on, um, you know, what Carol Anderson is talking about in White Rage, and she says very poignantly, you know, that. For every racial progress, there's racist progress, right? That there is always this catch up game that white supremacy plays with any sort of perceived advancement, particularly perceived black advancement. So when I look at the rise of Charlottesville, for me, that is not a 2016, 2015, 2017 conversation. Um, If we, you know, not only does it have a tremendous history in terms of white backlash, what I'm talking about more concretely, we can look at the rise of Obama was the rise of Trump, right? Sure. And, you know, in the in the way that many of my colleagues have stated it, it's that it was, you know, the followers were there awaiting their leader. So we look back at, uh, at you know, even, you know, literally reports being written by Homeland Security, they were completely ignored because they were focusing on white men, white domestic terrorism, um, and this, you know, this hysteria about, no, but they're not Muslim, so we couldn't possibly care. You see these reports about look this this Obama figure right there is a tremendously stoked white violent backlash to him and those reports were widely they they were dismissed you know uh, you know uh, staffs were cut because of this uh, you know because of this idea that you know well that that doesn't sort of uh, that's not the the dope on the table in terms of Muslim terrorism right. right. Um, but, yeah, but the, but the rise of Trump is, begins with the rise of Obama. I mean, that's that's really
1: the origin for it. So, Nikki, you wrote about Charlottesville. Obviously, you were there. You have a very personal take on it. Talk a little bit about the piece that you wrote and sort of your perspective about the contradictions, because I do think for some people, whereas on the one hand what Saida is saying seems pretty obvious, that, mm-hmm. you know, as we had a black president, mm-hmm. which I would argue is sort of the – height of black progress in some way it meant that you know we sort of a lot of us view the election as a a moment in real uh, white lash or you know Mm -hmm. white backlash if you will and you talked a lot about just the the contradictions Charlottesville in particular uh, sort of manifested with all of these issues going on at the same time
4: right being in Charlottesville was really fascinating for me in a lot of ways because you know, I had been on the alt-right beat before there was an alt-right beat, and so I had been studying these groups, but from a very sort of removed distance. Um, and then to be in Charlottesville on the 12th and be covering what was purported to be a rally, which was mass violence even by the time that I arrived on the scene a little after 11 that morning, um, made it much more personal. And one of the big questions that a lot of people had in the immediate aftermath of Charlottesville was wait, why do you have Klan rallies and torchlit marches and Nazis in the middle of what looks from a distance to be this kind of blue bubble in the middle of Virginia? Because it is very much a college town. It is very much a democratic town. And I think that for people who live in Charlottesville, the tensions are easier to see um, from up close. That it is a town that has a, a sp- a right-wing community, including Jason Kessler, who is the organizer of the so-called Unite the Right rally, um, and a visible presence of the old right within Charlottesville. And there is enough of a base in a place like rural Virginia for those types of politics. And you also have in Charlottesville, because of the tech and higher ed um, industries there, this kind of wealthy, white, liberal, performative progressivism that is a big part of the town. So you see people holding Nazi flags and Confederate flags marching under a banner that says, diversity makes us stronger. But that commitment to diversity doesn't go much further than banners, right? Here we have a town that, until 2015, didn't have a Black City Council member. And once they got a Black City Council member, the Black City Council member was like, hey, you know those Confederate statues in the middle of town? Not everybody loves those. <laughs> and In response, Jason Kessler carried out a campaign against West Bellamy, the city councilor, Um, and I think that it drew attention to another part of Charlottesville that's often ignored, which is a black community that doesn't have much power, um, segregation residentially and educationally in Charlottesville, and the way that that performative progressivism hasn't done much to actually address the um, landscape of racism in Charlottesville, and now that that racial progress is being pushed by a city council, spurred by West Bellamy to take these statues down. It became one of those sites um, for a variety of specific reasons, but these larger um, these larger patterns mm-hmm. that Saida is pointing to right. um, that has made it spot number one. And of course, Richard Spencer went to UVA. There yeah. <laughs> are personal right. connections as well. But um, I think that's why Charlottesville has become so, um, so much of the spot that
1: this is happening. So one thing I want to mention, um, we're going to keep talking for a few more minutes and then I'm going to open to questions from everyone, but I would also ask our panel to please uh, jump in. So Nikki, I want to build on something that you wrote about and that you just talked about. So after uh, you have the first black city council member, it struck me and he says, hey, maybe these statues of Robert <laughs> E. Lee are a bad thing. Uh, particularly given, and this is something that I've written about, I mean those statues really represent um, an attempt or a, you know, again, another sort of PR campaign, if you will, around uh, white supremacy and a terror campaign against African Americans. And what struck me was that's what the statues embodied. That's what the attack, on the city council member who, as you described it, you should talk a little bit more about it, it the, the nature of the attack, which was sort of like, hey, you, wh- we're, why are you upsetting all our, our black folks? Everybody seemed to be fine. Mm-hmm. And then, Said, I want you to weigh mm-hmm. in because it struck me that there's a connection between that and something, you you know, again, mm-hmm. what you talk about in terms of um, attacks on um, sort of uh, the black professors. Right, right.
3: And I would say visible black people in large, right? Yep.
4: Absolutely.
1: So talk a little about what happened with the, the specific attack on the city council member. Yeah,
4: it's interesting. I mean, we could, I'll set aside for a moment the alt-right attack on Bellamy and think more specifically about the Daily Progress, the, um, the big newspaper in town, and how they wrote about Bellamy, that they blamed the Unite the Right rally not on the alt-right or white mm-hmm. nationalists, but on Bellamy for stirring hmm. people up for being an agitator. It was a piece of Neo Jim Crow writing that's coming out in August of 2017, and I think calls attention to how close to the surface all of this stuff is. Um, One of the things that the alt-right has done pretty successfully, because the alt-right did not emerge to care about Confederate statues, but they saw this issue and they saw an opportunity in this issue um, to kind of build to build a coalition and to win people over to their side to win adherence And I think that they successfully did that it's telling that a uh, Virginia newspaper Virginia the heart of the Confederacy mm-hmm. um, Is writing about the black city council member as an agitator mm-hmm. um, And that I think is helpful for understanding that this is bigger than just somebody like Jason Kessler um, it's bigger than just a, a rally by the Klan or a rally by the old right that there are deeper and more systemic problems that are being drawn up
3: by this. Uh, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, a, again, to go sort of deep history with it, you know, what I what I see at this moment in which it is uh, we are abs- actually not at a particularly unique moment. Um, this is very much uh, the fever pitch that was struck under Woodrow Wilson's administration with the second birth of the Ku Klux Klan. We are, you know, w- Wilson was an avid white supremacist, you know, his... Almost first act as president was to segregate the you know the federal government employees, literally putting barriers between um, uh, black and white employees in the federal <coughs> government. Um, and Wilson was a uh, you know I was just telling you know Tyler um, uh, you know was uh, uh, about what we we know about Wilson in this time and his very direct connections to white supremacist movements. You know he's a very much a son of the Confederacy who saw Reconstruction as undoing. Right? What, you know, this way of life of white supremacy. Um, and so, you know, with this, you know, uh, 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 again, what what, ag- what so angered, um, uh, as though they needed a reason to be angry, what so angered white supremacists about Reconstruction was, again, black political power, right? Black political power, black economic power. And the idea of getting any of that. So, of course, you all know, you know, Reconstruction is the sort of greatest boom we have seen in terms of black elected officials. Because, you know, with 15th Amendment, black men get the right to vote, right? Black women are organizing internally through the black women's club movement. But this, but Birth of a Nation becomes, you know, the the, the first, you know, the first blockbuster film we have, right? Birth of a Nation becomes this um, propagandizing moment to say that, Black political power will be the end of, of, of our way of life. Black political power will mean that they will rape your daughters. Black political power will mean that, um, you know, that our entire Congress will be, you know, majority black. We will be the ones enslaved, right, this is this entire propaganda this campaign. And I think that in Charlottesville, you see not only vestiges of that, but you see, again, this, uh, the, you that white supremacists use black political power in these utilitarian ways to not only stoke their flame but to reassert what mm-hmm. their agenda is to, re- to reassert who they are, really. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I, I, I think that there's actually a very uh, a very vested interest and in a very sort of um, you know you, you you do what you know and sort of they inherited this legacy of you you know you 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 go for someone who's highly visible, black, who has some semblance of power, particularly political or economic power, and that is actually how you rebirth or you resurge a white supremacist movement.
1: So, Tyler, uh, I guess my question to you, since you have been looking at this for some time through, obviously, looking at David Duke and his role, both in the extremist right today, but I guess my question for you is, are they, is the right, Stronger today than it was in the past. I mean, because one of the things that struck me about the piece you were writing with Trump was it feels like it's expanded. It's not just targeted at African Americans. It's immigrants. It's the Muslim ban. It's you know, so it's building the wall. It's the Muslim ban. Um, so is it is the movement and they elected Donald Trump? Uh, is the movement larger today than it was? Is it more pervasive? than it was? Is it more acceptable than it was?
2: You're talking about the white supremacy movement. Correct. So I just got off the phone this morning in preparation for this event <laughs> with uh, someone at the Southern uh, Poverty Law Center and also at the ADL, the, the two groups that followed the extreme right the closest. And I posed that same question. And so I'm about to say something that some people will disagree with, which is I think that um, I think people believe that the alt-right is bigger than it really actually is because of Charlottesville, because Charlottesville got so much attention. Um, the number of people in Charlottesville, I was not there. You were there. Correct me if I'm wrong. The best I can tell from all the accounts that I've seen, except I haven't seen your piece yet, was there was maybe 500 people there. And there was a rally in Boston afterwards mm-hmm. against that, that that had far many more people. Um it seems clear that there are that the alt right movement, the white supremacist movement, is bigger than before. But I would argue that it is still very, very small. Dave, what David Duke achieved back in he was elected to the state legislature in Louisiana and, uh, narrowly, but he did win. And then he ran for governor of Louisiana and he got half the white votes in 1990. And then uh, and that was the Senate. In the 91, he ran for governor and got half the white votes. There has never been anybody with the, with I would argue as the political brilliance of David Duke, uh, on the alt right. No one else has shown any sign that they can come close to winning offices as David Duke has. There was um, a, a poll that that um, was pointed out to me that came out in the Washington Post uh, ABC poll, post Charlottesville that showed the question was, um, would you be concerned if someone expressed? neo-nazi or white supremacist views. And the surprising thing to me is that 9% said they would not be troubled by that if they had a friend who expressed those views. So bottom line to me is I, I think the, the, the movement to answer your question, Karen, is mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit larger. Uh, it's still a very, very small slice of America. But I think Trump has emboldened uh, uh, folks to feel say certain things uh, that they they maybe they wouldn't have said before or think certain
1: things.
3: it's small but it's well placed. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it has a lot of power. Extremely well placed. <clears throat> but but yeah. It's literally the oval.
1: I, I want so I want actually that's a point I want to make cuz I want to push back on that. Uh, this was the subject of conversation at uh, the IOP and the uh, post election campaign managers conference. Um, Made a, I made a comment to Kelly uh, and Conway that perhaps they mainstreamed white supremacism by bringing it into you know, steps from the Oval Office. And so I guess that's my, you know, just to push back, Tyler, a little bit on what you're saying is, is it, and maybe we don't yet know the answer to this question, uh, is it that it's, in terms of its size, it's, it's not, maybe it's about size, but about mainstreaming. It seems more acceptable yeah, yeah. Uh, you know Steve Bannon and Donald mm-hmm. Trump. I mean, some of the horrible things Trump says on a, you know, throwing paper towels at people in Puerto Rico in their mm-hmm. time of greatest. I mean, is that there is a racial element? I think mm-hmm. to that that sort of seems to mainstream um, some of the um, tenets of the alt-right or white supremacism. Is mm-hmm. that
5: well? This is why
4: the alt-right matters, right? The alt-right has been around since the mid-2000s, and certainly it, it mattered then. Um, but it didn't have the same kind of influence. Now, it has influence in places that we don't normally talk about, in places like the tech industry um, that we should be spending a lot more time talking about, and that becomes a conversation not just about white nationalism, but anti-woman and anti-feminist politics, so-called men's rights activism, which is a big part of the alt-right. But the empowerment of the alt-right, right, it becomes more visible during the 2016 campaign, because they hear something empowering in the MAGA message.
6: Mm-hmm. And
4: they latch on to that, and they find that they are not <coughs> right. pushed back upon, mm-hmm. right? They they find that they're actually continuously And the hiring of Steve Bannon, I mean, the reason Clinton gives her speech, as you well know, in late August is because of the hiring of Steve Bannon. That's why all of this attention suddenly comes on the alt-right, because Steve Bannon has declared Breitbart a platform for the alt-right, and now he has the ear of the candidate and then becomes a member of the administration. And that creates clear institutional and personnel linkages Mm -hmm. between the alt-right, which Bannon had been working for a couple of years to empower. Ever since Gamergate in 2013 and 2014, um, and brings it right into presidential politics. So to ignore the alt right at, at any point after August, I would argue, shouldn't have ignored it before. But to ignore it after August of 2016 uh, would have been journalistic malpractice.
1: Sadie, did you want to weigh in on
3: that? Uh, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I,
4: I absolutely. You know,
3: uh, these, these, um, these connections. These, you know, these uh, these tendons we see overlapping between the alt right and our mainstream institutions are, are are not our imagination. I mean, sometimes they're extremely literal connections, right? Um, you know, again, that is uh, you know part of our history. But um, but but you know, this is um, we. I, you know, I, I I I find myself troubled even using the term alt right at the point where they murder people. So uh, you know, I, I have a, I have trouble myself using that language because it seems like I am employing their own propaganda. You're talking about the
1: incident in Charlottesville, I,
3: I, absolutely. And I'm talking about the assaults on brown people. That you know, you have people, uh, you know, with with uh, you know, Southern Southern Poverty Law Law Center. You know, they're saying like, look, we don't have to sort of guess, you know, about people's intentions. Like they're literally writing like Trump, you know, at the scene of their hate crimes, mm-hmm. right? Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, this is you know, this is. White
2: domestic terrorism? Yep. Yeah. I I would say a couple things, and and these two may be controversial among some of you, which is I make a distinction between um, white nationalism and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. To me, white white nationalism, and I I think of Steve Bannon, who's not a person I've ever met, Mm -hmm. but as a person who's pushing the idea of, of sort of white rights and speaking... Uh, you know, there's a debate what gave rise to Trump. Was it identity or was it economics? And, for, and I think Bannon is pushing particularly that identity sense, the, the sense of, of white people in this country that they're losing their country, mm-hmm. that there's all these people are coming across the border, these Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas the white supremacist, to me, is someone who believes inherently that whites of people are superior to other races, that whites are responsible for all, all of the beauty um, in mankind. And let me say something else that people may disagree with. I interviewed a lot of, of David Duke supporters back in the day, and I made a distinction in my mind that I, did, I thought anybody who voted for David Duke was racially insensitive. I did not think that they were automatically racist.
1: I'd say that, explain that, how, that they were racially insensitive, but not automatically racist? Yes. Meaning
2: that they did not fully understand uh, race in the country and and how their views might be hurtful to African Americans or others, uh, but they did not. They were not trying. They were not uh, sort of out out against um, African Americans.
3: Mm-hmm. I think this brings up a very useful point, though. I think that part of what the visibility of, of far white right far white <laughs> <laughs> domestic terrorism has allowed us to do, is it is allowed to say, oh, those are racists, right? Mm-hmm. And racist must be embodied in a, a being, right? And those are racists, and therefore, elsewhere in the world, racism is this, you know, is this thing we either don't have to address or it's disembodied or it's abstract, etc. Um, and it, you know, goes back to, you know, you know classic sociology, we have this you know, racism without racists, right? That I think we, it allows Those of us who consider ourselves outside of that movement to say, oh, well, those people just have to die out, right? Um, They just inherited that from, you know, their granddads. And, you know, the problem is them. And then it allows us to be, to turn a blind eye to the way it operates everywhere else. To me, it is a question not worth answering if a David Duke supporter is racist or not, right? That's not worth answering. At the point in which you are okay with white supremacy and white nationalism, why is it worth answering if you individually have a black friend or not? Like, like, I think the the metric we have about this individual embodiment of racism, I mean, sociologically, that's a useless question.
4: And
5: I would just take that
3: a
4: step further and say that one of the things that the rise of the alt-right, and I think... Journalistically and historically, that's a useful term to use, although I think people have to be specific about what it means, Mm -hmm. Um, has unveiled um, some misconceptions broadly shared about racism among journalists. Um, that journalists have fundamentally misunderstood what racism is and what it looks like. And so they see somebody like Richard Spencer and he's not wearing a hood on his head and suddenly (laughs) they're like, whoa! (laughs) (laughs) Like, Let's write an article about the fact that he he eats fancy fancy. (laughs) food or he wears tweed or he cuts his hair this way. (laughs) Because what they don't understand is something that you said earlier Saida, which is that racism fits itself to the fashions of the time. And that's all the alt-right has Mm -hmm. done. They've Mm -hmm. refashioned racism and white nationalism into the garb of the social media age mm-hmm. and,
1: you know, hipster racists. But are we talking about two different things, which, yeah. so, wh- I mean, one, the, certainly the interviews that I've read with Richard Spencer, you know, they've talked about the idea of we want to take this online movement, offline, and the recognition that, you know, yeah, you, you want to look more clean cut and, look, right. and not look, uh, which I think is that... To me, that's a strategy. That's maybe that's you know, adapting to the time. But it also feels like a political strategy, sort of in the same way, kind of t- to where I think Tyler was going. Uh, you know, 25 years ago, David Duke had a political strategy. I mean, he may had his beliefs, but he also had a political strategy around how to attain political power uh, around that. So, so it's, it strikes me that's a little bit different than not just. Journalists not understanding it, but rec- maybe calling it for what it is,
4: and perhaps not realizing that racism is strategic, right? Mm-hmm. Like, of course, they're using strategies to become more
5: mainstream or to
4: seem more presentable, but respectable racism is also <laughs> like it's the citizens' council dressing right. up in suits instead of dressing up in sheets, and that okay. too is just historically how racism functions in the United States.
1: So here's the other question. I guess I want to pose to the panel the other piece that strikes me, again, sort of looking at the aftermath of 2016, um, you know, we had this conversation about, and Tyler's heard me pose this question before, but, you know, so we had this conversation about uh, the white working class, and it strikes me that, you know, particularly there are a number of studies that have been done post-2016 that illustrated exactly what Tyler was saying. A lot of white voters felt like they, and polls said things like, I don't recognize my country anymore. I don't know my place in my country anymore. Um, and that something that you all said, I mean, Trump kind of stepped into that with his dog whistles to sort of speak to that, to say, oh, it's not your fault, it's their fault. But don't we have to sort of view that on a spectrum in that I don't know that, I don't believe, I should say, and I say this as a mixed race Person who has a lot of white blue collar people in my family, I don't believe that. Or there, are, I think for some people, that's they're not racist. Their intention is not racist. It's fear-based, and it was manipulated, which is to me is different than when I look at a Richard Spencer who knows exactly what he's doing, or a David Duke who has um, even crazier beliefs, which we you know Tyler we should talk about in terms of his beliefs about. Jewish people and sort of the supremacy of of white. I mean, it feels like, isn't there a spectrum? And so my question is, do we even have the right language to be able to talk about this because it's such a nuanced conversation?
3: Right. Well, you know, I think that um, across our different disciplines and locations, yeah, I do think that we are not, we don't connote the same things when we say racism, right? So, you know, social scientists (coughs) and journalists and policymakers sometimes they don't mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. The legal community certainly has a definition mm-hmm. of racism that I think is like I'm like this is not how it's works and so scientists, right? Um, so there's certainly that, right? And I think that um, in terms of how the spectrum looks on the ground, um, okay, so let's let let's abstract the even term racism. Let's just talk about self-interest, right? Let's just talk about self-interest, right? It's a much easier way to maybe to maybe digest this thing. If you are operating out of self-interest and you see your self-interest as aligned with people who look like you and you have power to take away resources from other people who do not look like you, then can we operate on that maybe is what's happening, right? So, you know, and when we look at the white working class, um, I was actually really, uh, I was talking about this this week and I was actually really fascinated because of the question that, you know, um, labor scholars have, have, but I just got a real answer to it of why didn't unions take off in the South, right? Well, we look at unions, we look at northern industrial cities, and it wasn't because the South didn't have industry. Obviously, um, post-Reconstruction, the South had you know, plenty of industry, steel, etc. cetera. Um, most of them were using exploited black labor. But unions didn't take off in the South because union coalitions were seen as a threat to Jim Crow, right? That they were seeing that this this idea of having your self-interest be class-based, labor-based, was seen as a direct threat to Jim Crow, which was race-based self-interest. So you see it all turns in which the white working class has decided from slavery on out that their interest is going to be race-based. Um, and, and they have uh, cut off their nose despite their face many times in our history to protect that race-based in- interest um, to the point where they can see themselves more aligned with Trump than they can mm-hmm. with working class people of color, mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think that, again, in our popular discourse about this, you know, and, uh, and the way our media has talked about this, I think it's been very sloppy the way we've talked about the working class, right? Working class people of color overwhelmingly did not vote for Trump, right? right. Um, so if, it did, if it's this economic angst, why is it only white?
7: Mm-hmm. Well,
4: and that the working class is overwhelmingly non-white. It's <laughs> so yeah, overwhelmingly yeah. non-white, Fair exactly. point. Exactly. But also that, I mean, there's a difference between the strategy of how you talk about these things, because mm-hmm. there is such an immediate defense of withdrawal any time the word racism or racist right, is right. brought into it. But you do have to reckon with it at some level that uh, for a lot of white voters, they heard this message that yes. said, I want to hurt non-white people. And even if they weren't like, well, I want to hurt non-white people right, too, right. they said, I do not care enough about right. that that I'm going to vote differently. And that matters. I think it it goes back to your perhaps indifference question um, or description. But that, at a certain point, I mean, then it becomes perhaps an intellectual conversation. But Mm -hmm. at what point do we call that racism? Um, uh, Not useful politically, strategically, but intellectually, for understanding what happened in 2016, I think we have to grapple with that.
1: So, we're going to go to questions in just a moment. Do we have microphones? We do have microphones that will be handed. Tyler, I'm going to come to you before I go to the microphones and, and kind of pose the question. So, what, you know, so I started this conversation by saying there were lessons that were, I think, on the table that we didn't pay attention to going into Charlottesville. Char- Charlottesville obviously was a pretty powerful moment. We've got Richard Spencer speaking on Thursday. At the University of Miami, the governor of Florida,
2: University of Florida, the, you,
1: sorry, yes. University of Florida, uh, the governor has declared a, a state of emergency in order to bring to bear resources uh, uh, to try to prevent. I suppose what happened in Charlottesville, what,
2: but what uh, even before you get to your question, I, 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 I'm ahead. a reporter, but I'm struck that if no press covered that event mm-hmm. and no pr- nobody protested, Richard Spencer could not go he only goes to that event because he wants the publicity mm-hmm. that he knows he's going to get and then he knows that there's going to be an opposite group of people mm-hmm. they're going to get all riled up. And the same thing happened in Charlottesville. I'm you know I wasn't there again, but I'm convinced that they went there
1: wanting to get a clash because the clash yes. then brought oh, absolutely. all the publicity. Absolutely. Right. And that's part of I think that's part of their strategy, right? Absolutely. So kind of to that so taking that point that was clearly a political strategy or an organizing strategy, if you will, um, again, feeling in the emboldening post-Trump election. So I guess, Tyler, my question to you is, what do we, how, moving forward, what is the responsibility of the media? I think one of the things we hear from reporters is there's so much happening all the time. It's hard to cover this, but obviously this is an issue that's not going away. It's been with us a long time how can what is the responsibility of the media going forward in this
2: so let me go back to the days when i covered david duke in louisiana and one of the dilemmas is all right do you cover somebody like this because you're just giving him publicity but then the other people think well no we, we will expose him for what he is but but it was actually back in the day with david duke it was it was local tv that gave him so much coverage and duke is brilliant as I mentioned earlier. But one of the things he's brilliant at is manipulating the media and getting out his message. And the same thing I think is probably happening today. The fact that we know Richard, who Richard Spencer is, he obviously has a certain a, a level of, of intelligence and able to manipulate the media. So again, the question comes up: Do you cover people like this? And I'm guessing that I'm guessing that cable TV news uh, overcovers uh, someone like that. But here's another question. Should, should, should sites like the, uh, um, the Daily Stormer that was shut down, I actually don't think that kind of thing should happen. I know it was done by a private company. They choose to do that. But my feeling is if you, if you, if you dislike the, the, the views expressed by David Duke or Don Black or the other people on the, on the, the, the extremist right, out-organize them. Show that you got better ideas than them. Don't shut down their opportunity to
1: speak. <laughs> Let's go to questions. Is there, micro who's got the mic? Right here. It's over here.
5: Hi, my name is Jackson. I'm an MPP at HKS. I have a question. <clears throat> Thanks for this uh, conversation. I had a question about um, so white nationalists, uh, in in my view, were an important part of the coalition that got Trump elected. So I have a two-part question. You've answered part of it already. Um, Why do you think white nationalists and white supremacists are an important part of Trump's coalition? Mm -hmm. And then, more importantly, what is it that we can actually do about that? And I think about how the Democratic Party had a shift in the 60s in the civil rights movement, where they were they relied on racist white people to win elections, and those racist white people left the Democratic Party and went to the Republican Party. (laughs)
4: <laughs> There's so <laughs> many ways in uh, that right. case. Easy, easy questions, yeah. easy, yeah. Qu- no, easy tactics. <laughs> well, uh, one, one thing that I'm thinking about um, just in response to that, because that is a, it's a huge question, yeah. and I think it, it's maybe debatable how much of an electoral impact mm-hmm. courting white nationalists had, but it does have some electoral impact in a very close election, and I think we have to understand this as part of, it's not Donald Trump's strategy, because the most strategic person in the world, it's part of Steve Bannon's strategy, right? Mm, yeah. His he focused in on GamerGate because he saw, which was a, a video talk about game gamer controversy was. in 2013, 2014, supposedly about ethics and gaming journalism, but really about the fact that there were women gamers and women game journalists who were calling out video gaming for being very anti woman and anti non white people, um, and so there was this whole um, often violent, um, but pretty vitriolic um, attack on women gamers and women game journalists. Um, a lot of men's rights activism stuff coming in there. And so there was this group of people who um, had a lot of energy and a lot of um, uh, anger. And Bannon saw that and he said, I can turn those people into voters. And the way that he began that process, because people are probably not going to go to the polls based on video gaming, is that he hired Milo Yiannopoulos, who had come to his attention during Gamergate, and brought him on board as the tech editor of Breitbart. And Milo was an important component of turning Breitbart into a platform for the alt right, and bringing those gamers, white young men by and large, into a broader political ideology that included white nationalism. Mm-hmm. And as Jamal Bowie said in a panel I was on with him last week, effectively radicalizing them.
1: Right. Yeah, right.
4: And that process, Was an important part of his strategy. He understood why Trump would resonate with those gamers and with that community. And I don't think that that's the only place that that was happening, but it was part of that strategy. And it's part of a strategy of how do you win elections with an almost entirely white base when the white population percentage of the population is shrinking. Right. And we have to think about this as a an explicit political strategy. Yeah.
3: Thank you for that's the first time I think here to explain so you know lucidly.
4: Um, you know, to your
3: to your question, what I, I heard a piece of it is your interest in this uh, the this uh, the Southern strategy and the exit of the Dixie Craft into the GOP. Um, part of what I think was done in this election and, it's, and and let me say it is done by both parties at sort of every turn in our electoral process. I think this election was just particularly loud about it. Um, is the creation of the single-issue voter, right? So you know you can look at focus on the family, look at evangelism, and they were gonna, they, you know, they're gonna rally people to the electorate by being single-issue voters, right? So you have even black people who are like, well, you know, I had to vote for Trump because you know my, you know, he's my religion dictates that. I vote. Well, your religion's mad racist. That's interesting, right? Like, my, how is your Jesus so okay with you know everything else, right? Um... But, yes, this idea of making a single-issue voter, and I think that the single issue for this election became white entitlement, right? The sense of white entitlement, and therefore uh, white entitlement is under assault in this sort of zero-sum game by anyone else's advancement means a loss of it, and particularly you have to talk about white masculinity in that, right? This, you know, what we have, because I think that this is particularly the moment in which this shifts from previous iterations of creating a single-issue voter. What we have now is an anxiety about white entitlement because I think that for white men, and I hear this even in my colloquial conversations with white men, this idea that they are not doing as well as their fathers. Well, if you don't tell the truth about your fathers and realize that your fathers received hundreds of years of government handouts and white welfare and GI bills and Social Security, right, then you think you're failing. Because your father's saying, when I was your age, I owned two homes and had a factory job, et cetera, right? And so they're looking at white masculinity, and wondering what is the purchase of white masculinity anymore, right? And that if if it de- if it cannot purchase as much, then it must be because we are losing what is ours, right? And this sense of yet yeah, this e- extremely angry entitlement about everyone else's advancement, right? This. A strange irony in people who want a fair market, right? A very strange irony that that fair market meant just, no, we want to compete against white guys. We didn't mean, like, women, right? Um, But that becomes, like, a single-issue vote right now. Like, this, this sense of white entitlement becomes single. And I think that you don't have to be a white nationalist you see white nationalists as sort of adjacent to that project, right? They are maybe the vanguards of that project. So there are things about that that you hear and you say, oh, that makes kind of sense to me, you know? That's what that's what it feels like, you know, in my town. Um, you know, that's what it feels like, you know, um, when we look at, you know, uh, the crises affecting white communities in terms of opioid addiction, et cetera, right? They must be on to something. This stuff wasn't happening, you know, before. Um, so I think that became the single issue Um, for this electorate, but it has been used before. It just just hadn't been used like this in a while. And it had been used with the Southern strategy.
1: I think I would just add to that, just um, having also worked for the party, that I think uh, Dan Balz, who's a uh, columnist for the Washington Post, put it really beautifully in terms of just looking at the demographics and the shifts in this country and made the point that uh, the Trump campaign did a better job of maximizing the, yes. v- the past yes, and absolutely. the vote and this sort of anxiety and the recent past. And our campaign, which I happen to agree with, didn't, you know, because there's been so much conversation about demographics and, the, you know, ma- minority majority, and that's how we were going to put together this coalition, that our campaign perhaps didn't do a good enough job maximizing the voters of the future. Um, in the way that, for example, Obama did in creating his coalition. Um, so that's that's a more political answer <laughs> than, than, than <laughs> these guys are, you know. But that, that would be um, my perspective on that. Other questions in the back.
5: Hi, I'm Caitlin Burrows. I work for the Ash Center. Um, I just want to kind of push back on this idea that the way that we should be approaching these people um, instead of shutting down their, their gathering spaces is um, – kind of approaching them in the marketplace of ideas and there's this very nice liberal idea that if we kind of engage with these arguments and talk to people and and shine a light on how irrational this viewpoint is then we're going to change minds but I think that um, not only are these ideas inherently irrational and you can't really engage intellectually with an inherently irrational inherently violent viewpoint but there are things in our psychology that stop us from being able to think rationally about this and by what I mean is I mean, it's been proven that, um, for instance, in a mixed gender group, men will overestimate how much women are speaking. In um, a mixed race group, people will overestimate the, white people will overestimate the amount of representation of people of color in the group. So they see, you know, there's three. Black people in a group of of twenty, and say, "Oh, the group was ninety percent black." black Yeah, I I have um, yeah, I have relatives that swear that my hometown is now seventy percent minority, and it's like fifteen in the last (laughs) census, just because they happen to see more people of color downtown. Um, So I guess my question is, what is the, how can the media uh, approach this kind of um, viewpoint that where we're psychologically unable. To really conceptualize and think rationally about this and you t- touched on a little bit too with the white entitlement and this kind of zero-sum idea that any advancement from a marginalized group inherently means that the dominant group is losing something rather than um, moving towards equity and how can we address that how can we talk about it
2: I make three quick points the first of all is is it would not be easy to change somebody who, is a, who has white supremacist or white nationalist views to change their views, but it can happen, and if, anybody, if you're free tonight at 6 o'clock, you're going to hear a great talk by a guy named Derek Black, and there's a great story in the Washington Post that, that, that where it tells Derek's story to, to, to evolve. Now, I would admit not, not many people would be able to do that, But there's a second category of people, which are sort of persuadables. And I think those are the people perhaps you want to reach. The third is just, and I I see my my Shorenstein colleague, uh, Donna Brazil, back there. (laughs) And uh, she talks about. in Trouble. Yeah, we call it (laughs) trouble. Uh, But that that the number of. Of people who did not vote in the election, so instead of necessarily trying to convert a, a white nationalist, maybe you can, you can get other people to make sure that they vote, because, and you know this too, Karen, yeah. if the, the the Hillary people who didn't turn out to vote, you, know, you can convince them that, that, the re, that various reasons they really need to make sure, then... Then you're winning your, the elections, and you have the voice.
1: But I, so I, I think I, I'm going to ask this question so you can answer both. Mm-hmm. I think this goes back to something we were talking about before, though. Also, that I don't think people in our in our minds wanted to believe that this could happen. Not just that Trump could be elected, but that white national, like Nazis, are on an American, you know, an American city. Really, I mean, imagine if you know the night before when they had the. Uh, when they were walking through Charlottesville with torches. Imagine if it had been black and brown people, right. not white. I, mean, I just think people just didn't. So why can't,
2: a, why can't the, the progressives then take that as an opportunity to organize and make sure that their candidates win in the next elections?
1: But I wonder also is it to the panel that we just have to all get real about who, who our country really is. I mean, you wrote about this a little bit, Nikki, about like, this question of who are we.
4: Right, well, no, and I, I do think that, especially when we're talking about white nationalism, I think we have to reckon with how recently that's become uh, an out of bounds idea. Um, yeah, you right. know, 50 years ago, the idea that white people deserved the benefits of the nation was not a heavily <laughs> contested idea that's right. at a point in time when, like, 90% of the electorate was white. And part of what we're adjusting to is that that's not the reality anymore. And that actually goes to this question of free speech, because now we have to grapple with this idea. In a a liberal, and not in a politically liberal, but in a liberal society, do you open up the conversation to debate people's fundamental humanity? And that's what's happening in some of these conversations. The government isn't shutting these down. This isn't a First Amendment issue. But it is this issue of what ideas should be out there in the public sphere, and how do you respond to them? So that's, that's one part of it. I would also just say on the free speech issue is that one of the things that sets the alt right apart from the previous white nationalist movements to an extent is how effectively they have made the free speech argument, um, been effectively able to turn the political and journalistic conversation to that, to pivot away from. What we're actually advocating for right, here exactly. is racist, anti-woman, anti-Islamist, anti- <laughs> anti-Semitic um, politics. But what this is actually about is free speech. Right. Um, why are we not allowed to ha- say these things?
3: And that's the ultimate dog whistle, right? I mean, that is when we talk about how strategic that you know this movement has been. That's the ultimate dog whistle, right? That is the. It's not about Jim Crow. It's about forced busing, right? Um, you know, that's the dog was that it must be, you know, it's about free speech, to which, you know, the great irony of that is when, you know, uh, that that's, you know, the, the free speech argument is always uh, said by the same people who, like bulldogs, attack, you know, black and brown people who speak about these issues, right? So that's the great irony, you know, that we call for the firing of, of you know, of, of any visible uh, people who speak of, uh, uh, who are anti-racist. Um, but, but they're, you know, under the same rallying cry of the free speech. But, yeah, you're right. That's been a that's been tremendous strategy, um, and, it, and it appears centrist. So the danger to me is about how, how um, seductive that is to the mainstream, right? So you have, you know, university presidents saying, oh, yeah, you know, we need to make sure that we secure the free speech of these groups. There's a difference between free speech and providing a platform for them, right? To provide a platform of a university to these groups is different than saying,
4: no, they have the right to free speech in there. I read it, right? And, sh- and should mm. it the university be hosting <laughs> conversations that, like when they had on CNN, are Jews people? Like, is that a legitimate right. debate right. to have at a university? Right. And that's, I mean, that's the debate that you're opening up when you right. invite some of these people onto campus, and I'm just saying that we need to have a conversation about is that is that right. mm-hmm.
1: the kind of conversation a university wants
5: to host. Tyler, did you want to
1: say anything for the microphone? Who's got the mic? Uh, let go back over here, and then we'll come back on that side.
7: Hi. Um, Derek Jackson, uh, Shorenstein fellow last fall. Um, uh, Trump, obviously, as you all have talked, uh, has manipulated white Uh, privilege and supremacy enough that 53% of white women voted for Trump. So we're only about a year from the next presidential campaign cycle. Who among the Democrats um, has the the possibility of both uh, extracting some of those white voters from their white privilege, as well as inspiring and mobilizing the former Obama coalition to get out and vote. Well, I,
3: I'm
6: not gonna answer that with Donald <laughs> 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 in the room. <laughs> that was a good That was good
1: Um, I would just offer. I don't think we know yet. Yeah. I, I, I'm right. looking at Donna to see if she agrees with me on that one. Yeah, I don't think we can. I mean, I you know, the best example I've ever. I, people give is like at this point in the cycle of the you know 92 election i don't think anybody thought bill clinton would have mm-hmm. anywhere on the radar screen or right. would have won so i think it's hard to know or at barack this obama. moment right. or barack or obama donald so. like right. we, or, or donald trump, trump. like trump, right. Right. oh yeah that one or that you just can't predict it right right like, like, exactly
3: um you know but what Thing that's fascinating to me about your question is the, is the question of non-voters, right? So we know the biggest group of the electorate this past 2016 were non-voters, right? And I don't think we've actually looked enough at the demographics of who were non-voters. Um, there's been a very, I've, I found it very unsettling, this idea of like, well, you know, Hillary lost because black people stayed home. I, I think that's, I don't think that's actually. That's actually demogra- not true. Yeah, I don't think it's true, right? <laughs> no. I, I just don't think it's demographically true. Um, we saw, uh, you know, uh, we saw a great deal of white Obama voters, uh, you know, abstaining from this election, etc. And so that's going to be the question of what is, what are the rallying cries of non-voters? And um, you know, I think, and you know, inside, you know, the, the DNC, of course, there's plenty of conversation about which direction they're going to go. I will say, <laughs> what has worked in the past is not a past that I'm comfortable with. what's worked in the past. Is the, is the Bill Clinton style of, oh, we'll just double down on mass incarceration, right? We'll just push the, the gas pedal on Southern strategy. I
1: think you have one. No? Yeah.
6: Thank, <clears throat> thank you. Elliot Prager, neighbor. Uh, the uh, issue of white supremacy has always been discussed in terms of white males. And yet the fact is during the 1880s and 90s, it was the southern female organizations that created the mythology of the Absolutely. Confederacy who raised the money that built all of the monuments. And in this past election cycle, if you looked at any of the rallies for Trump, there were as many women in the audience with their necks distended in fervor. Could you please comment on the, on, on the traction of women... Within the white supremacy problem. Oh
3: yeah, I'm a resident feminist here, so in terms of my scholarship, I'm sure politically there are many of us in the room. Um, But yes, so first of all, there is you know the hysteria that came out of uh, the the creation of the first Ku Klux Klan and its rebirth was always tied up in this question of not even the question of this rallying cry of white women's virtue, right? And white women absolutely were front and center in stoking that flame um, and, 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 and had a vested interest, a, you know, when we're, and were inside all of the inner workings of white terrorist organizations. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and white men were not doing racial terrorism for any sort of noble idea, about, you know, white women's, you know, they were they were, they were were making excuses out of white women's bodies in order to kill black men and women. Um, the, the other part of that, I think, is this, you know, there were so many points in Trump's campaign in which we thought, oh, this will be over, right? White women will abandon him and this will be over. He's talking about sexually assaulting women, it's on tape. This is over, right? And at every turn... White women decided. Now nah, we're still riding with it, right? That is a, <laughs> an incredibly uh, heavy suitcase to unpack about why he. You know, we weren't look graphically So the college educated white women, they didn't like him during the election, but some of them showed up for him during in the polls. Um, but there's this question of like, why weren't white women ever done with him? Um, and I think that that you know. That again is that single issue type of thing right where they decided they were that their white womanhood was white first um, and that their white womanhood had more of a vested interest self-interest in what was going to happen to white people in this country um, yeah that's that's a real question for intersectionality
4: <laughs> well and so my my, my most recent box column was on the women of the alt-right mm. and looked at exactly this question right, right? especially for mm-hmm. The alt-right, which has this strong, patriarchal, anti-feminist, anti-woman politics to it, why are women having um, having their political activism here? And a lot of it has to do with that they're largely invested in the racial project of the alt-right, that their whiteness is where they see their power. But I think we also have to understand that anti-feminist women activists have been a thing for a very long time. Um, if we think about someone like Phyllis Schlafly, obviously, it was pushing for this idea of traditional womanhood as a political activist operating well outside of that context. I mean, it's something that we see time and again. It's the women of the Klan in the 1920s. Absolutely. It's just it's we tend not to talk about it that much. Right. Um, but it is something with a long historical tradition that I think is somewhat easy to understand if you see their primary identity as white. And I don't
3: don't think that they have to disaggregate white womanhood from that, because, again, they see white womanhood as being protected by white men. I mean, this is, again, that long sexual project of seeing brown people as sexual predators, right, and criminalizing particularly black and brown men as sexual predators. So I think that their white womanhood very well sits (coughs) in the nest of white supremacy. Tyler, what
1: about just kind of going back to 25 years ago, David Duke, would you say the same was true in terms of women's engagement then as we're talking about now? In the, in yeah. The mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks for that answer. That was helpful. Um, you know, one thing I would add to that, that uh, Kellyanne Conway, who was obviously important in the Trump victory, one of the point, the only thing that she said that I agreed with that I think is, one, is a really interesting um, sort of premise to view what happened, one of the things they found with voters uh, was, and she didn't distinguish male or female, but I mm-hmm. think for women this goes to your point, is uh, what offends me is not what affects me. Right, right, right. And so I think to the point you guys are making, it makes. I wonder if that was part of why they were able to then sort of use that to create the pathway right. and the permission structure to then even post videotape to, to vote for Trump to be able to then say, it might, you might be offended by that, but here's what's really going to affect you if you don't yeah. support him. Let's uh, go on this side, and then we'll come back over here.
0: Um,
8: I wanted to ask about um, Charlottesville, that in a lot of ways it seemed very, very traditional. It's the same ideology as 25 years in most ways. Uh, the way it was organized, the, the idea of having an outdoor event and media. So it seemed like really the most striking thing was how many young men were there, like college-age men had traveled from around the country. And so I'm curious uh, your thoughts on that, on, first of all, what changed? That, like the problem for 20 years for a white nationalist event like that has been that young people, or anyone who has a lot to lose, could get outed. And then have a lot to lose for that. And it seemed like the boldness in Charlottesville was throwing that to the wind. A lot of people doing that, saying, it's fine, Uh, I'll just deal with it. And then you actually saw that. There were a lot of college students who afterwards were outed. And then instead of freaking out, they were prepared. They had an articulate white nationalist talking point. They went on the media. They talked about how they believed in their people. It was all very well choreographed. I have a theory that the the alt-right social media has made building your brand and have being a white nationalist activist a more plausible career path than it was a few years ago, but I don't know about that. So I guess my question is, what do you think changed in recently that would make so many young people able to come to something like that without fearing repercussions and then sort of follow up if the violence at Charlottesville maybe changed that dynamic so it might be less likely that so many young people would see this online and go to an event like that in the future, mm-hmm. or that's not the case.
4: Yeah, I mean, I do think that one of the big things that has changed the demographic of something like this is that use of social media and that process of radicalization that's happened. Um, I do think that there were two different types of young men at Charlottesville. There were the ones who had the talking points and who were ready to be outed and were ready to, like, make a career. As an alt-right white nationalist social media figure, and that I think you're right, it can be for some people an alternative career path
5: slash political
4: <laughs> path. But they were also the ones who didn't actually realize they were going to pay any political consequences right. for throwing Nazi salutes in the middle of a firelit right. rally in the middle of a college campus, and actually got really scared. And when somebody died, was we're also like, oh my gosh, this isn't just like Nazi larping. It's actually something that has real-life consequences. But you do see this, right? Like It was role-playing that was happening in some ways, too, which is not to disaggregate it from the deeply violent politics already at the heart of what was happening there, but to say that in transitioning from the online world to the real world, um, suddenly some of them faced real-world consequences that they hadn't actually anticipated that they would face. And so I think that they're, and I do think that the death of Heather Heyer, the murder of Heather Heyer, um, for some of them, really drove that home. I mean, it's one thing if you're, um, you know, throwing bottles at Antifa activists, it's another um, when somebody's died. I
3: I I think that, you know, what you explained earlier about Gamergate, and when when we intersect that with age and look at youth, I think that Mm -hmm. becomes so important in terms of the appeal that this type of rhetoric already had with a particular cohort of young white men, um, and it met them where they were, right? right. It, real, it literally brought it to their doorstep, met them where they were. <laughs> You're online, we're online, you know?
4: Uh, we you have know, memes. They, you we, like memes. like
3: yeah. Exactly, right? You have a Twitter egg, we got a Twitter egg. You know, it's like it, they really brought it to where they were. I think that was incredibly effective, and, you know, let's not forget, I mean, you know, as, as those of us who interact with millennials every day, I, 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 I really do not like this rhetoric about, like, oh, millennials are so multiracial, and they don't have, you know, they're just the Coca-Cola generation, and they don't have any real problems. I'm like, what are you talking about? I see new races born every day. And there's a, a very concerted effort to radicalize white students on college campuses. This is part of what happened to me, right? So I was used as a... Um, as a as a target, so that a, a neo-Nazi group could come on our campus, and their whole point was they wanted to spread into New England. They wanted to have a greater hold on New
1: England. But isn't Tyler? I'm going to come to you one second. But isn't part of that say to also just uh, and to answer that question technology? I mean, oh, the, the, I mean, because some of the tactics that they used against you are mm-hmm. tactics. I mean, James O'Keefe going after right. Planned Parenthood. I mean, some of this. Are the tactics we've seen them use in other sectors, and I think technology just enables yeah. it to a degree that we haven't seen well, before. I, you know, and
3: I talk about this because technology, for me, mimics the type of anonymity that white people once uh, utilized in in their own forms of racial terrorism. Right. So it's the, it's the mob violence effect. So think. You know, I think about it in terms of regionalism as well. You, bec- you have a sense of we are legion. We are a white nation because I think the digital space is no longer, you know, where, where, where a lynching, you know, might have been a town communicating to another town how they handle their black people, right? This whole sense that you get from a digital space is like, oh, I might be, you know, uh, I, I might feel alone in the middle of Wisconsin, which you don't, because we know, we know, any of us from the Midwest know how these places operate it allowed white people, particularly young white people who live in majority white areas, to have a sense of white nationalism that that transcended regional borders, right? And that's why you can go to Michigan and see Confederate flags, you know, you know waving in the air, right? In
1: Massachusetts, yeah.
3: Exactly, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think what the digital space mimicked was what the mob mentality mimicked for white violence for hundreds of years. Um, and, you know, and, and <coughs> that, that wasn't white. It's not the same thing as anonymity because I think when you look at white people at lynchings, they were posing for pictures, mm-hmm. right? They were very proud of having done this violence to black bodies. But the mobness of it mm-hmm. created this collective sense of white power. And I think that's what the digital space mimics. Tyler? Uh,
2: I just say a couple things to follow up on the question, which is why young people today. So David Duke, back in the 70s, he was very, very frustrated. He, he put out a pamphlet called Who Runs the Media? And his belief was Jews ran the media. And that's something we haven't really talked very much about here. But, but David Duke, his true biggest concern in life for Jews, it's not African Americans, it's not people. And that's true of other leaders of the, uh, on the extreme right. But Duke was always trying to find a way to get around the media. And he put out a monthly newspaper but what we have in the digital age is there's all these new ways that that Absolutely. that all of us can reach people and you can reach people in a very niche way and and the people now right have been very clever there's this sort of fashy haircut of, of richard spencer mm-hmm. and they use mems in very um, clever ways and, and some other cultural icons mm-hmm. and you know the pepe the the, the frog oh, right. and so you can you can reach a, a, a potentially persuadable audience in a way that, that I think you couldn't before
1: yep. Agreed Good.
7: Question up here but. I'd like to follow up on some of the earlier comments of the panel um, In an era like ours in which free speech is under such threat uh, I find it very chilling to have someone describe uh, free speech as the ultimate Dog whistle. Uh, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, I hope it wasn't the attack on free speech that I initially feared it was. Uh, but I'm most interested in following up on Tyler's remarks uh, just before the Q and started about uh, the extent to which. Well, this is another free speech issue, here, isn't it? Uh, the extent to which by covering. Uh, news events, uh, events created by alt-right people. We give them the, the publicity they d- desperately seek for. I'm still trying to figure out uh, the extent to which the news media enabled Trump in the campaign. Do you think uh, that my suspicion that he he played them like a, a fiddle uh, and that the media hasn't yet faced up to the fact that they have a share of the blame for Trump winning by the way they covered him and by the way they, even now, are being used for his publici- his reality show TV publicity games. Yeah.
1: Right. Tyler, do it.
2: I think you're the best person to answer that, Karen. <laughs> I'm
1: just the moderator. Today. You're the <laughs> journalist. No, 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 I know. I, know. I,
2: I don't cover Trump, so.
1: <laughs> I mean, I would say yes. I, uh, uh, although you know, there are some in the media who have some. I mean, it happened uh, again right here at the post-election conference. It, you know, to some degree, cable news is a money-making endeavor, and they would say, "Well, our shareholders were happy." So, you know, and interestingly enough, it was uh, Republicans from the from other campaigns in the primary who were the most (laughs) angry about the fact that Trump became the nominee. I mean, we were not. I'm not happy about it either. But but, uh, so I think. Yeah, I think there's an open question as to whether or not when you have on a split screen, you know, uh, an empty podium waiting for Trump. And on the other, I mean, I can remember nights when Hillary, you know, we actually won a primary and we were waiting because Trump was going to speak. And we knew that even though we were about to be able to give a speech having won something and he was just doing a, reg- a rally, that was what was going to get covered. And so we had to, you know, make sure we spoke before because his it was so unfiltered. So I, I but I actually, and I guess the question that I would put to Tyler, to, to, to your question, because can't let you off the hook that easily, is from the perspective, though, of the media, I mean, to your point about how things are, you know, whether or not coverage, you know, sort of begets exactly what they want, I mean, isn't part of, and this kind of goes back to what I was asking the question as to whether or not we have the language to really talk about and cover what's happening, that, you know, these things, it, it may be that Richard Spencer wants this uh, controversy going into his speech on Thursday, but is not part of the responsibility of the media not to just show the event, you know, from beginning to end with no critical thought, like on a cable or a, or a journalist, to write about it in a way that is critical to, you know, who he really is, what he's really trying to accomplish, so th- to sort of walk that line so that you're not just, uh, you know, adding to making him this kind of cool figure
2: that they're try, I mean, trying to portray. Yeah, uh, again, I, I refer back to, to, to David Duke. Um, oh. And by the way, I am updating my biography about to come out with him. It's going to be called The Rise and Fall of David Duke. should be available in a couple of weeks on Amazon.com. <laughs> if I can put that plug in there. Um, I saw reporter after reporter who was not prepared to, to interview David Duke, and he, would, he was so brilliant at manipulating them and uh, and they needed to have anticipated what he was going to say, his anticipated his moves. But let me make the point as a reporter: this is not just about covering the right. This is this is covering Democrats, Republicans, uh, and you know there there are all sorts of smart smart elected officials going back God knows how many years, and they're very good at manipulating the media. And and, and it, it, that could be Ronald Reagan, it could be Richard Nixon, it could be John Kennedy, et cetera. So it's a constant battle that we journalists face.
4: But one of the things that's happening, right, is both Donald Trump and the alt-right had successful media strategies that exploited weaknesses in contemporary journalism. And those weaknesses being things like false balance. I mean, if you show Richard Spencer event and you need to debate it afterwards objectively, and your idea of objectivity is balanced, and then you end up with David Duke versus somebody else being the ones debating it. That's how you end up with our Jews people as the banner on CNN. It's this idea that was so easy to exploit, and then you add into that the uh, false equation of newsworthiness and ratings, like, whatever gets the highest ratings is the most newsworthy, mm-hmm. and then you end up with coverage like mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the ability to exploit those weaknesses has been one of the major successes of the alt-right mm-hmm. over the last year.
3: I mean, to credit to journalists, though, I saw a great deal of, of reflection in sort of the Monday morning, morning quarterbacking. I saw a great deal of reflection about, like, where are we in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, like, you know, by definition, everything the president says is news. This is what Dan Rather was talking about. Right? He said, by definition... Everything the president says is news. But where are we if we are constantly sort of chasing or, or allowing ourselves to, to you know, to, to be red herring by everything Trump tweets? And I think there was a great deal of this sort of, you know, come to Jesus moment in journalism about, you know, are we going to actually adjust to this new playbook? Um, you know, Jeff Zucker was saying, I think it was a bad idea that I allowed uninterrupted Trump rallies you know, for, you know, 50 minutes on end, you know, allow the 50 minutes where no one was at the podium and they were just waiting and chanting. I actually did see some reflection on that. Now, the question is sort of what comes out of that reflection.
4: Do they actually come to Jesus? Yeah, (laughs) I would argue
1: they're still, I think when you talk to most journalists, they're still trying to figure it out, to be honest. I think we have time for one more question. Anybody on this side who hasn't asked a question yet? One gentleman. Oh, sorry, go ahead, my cool. Sure, oh,
3: Thanks. Uh, Michael Jacoby-Brown. I'm an alum of the Kennedy School. Uh, listening to your comments about uh, race and the unions, a little closer to home, I wonder what you think of Elizabeth Warren's recent going to a white Irish bar in Jamaica Plain and endorsing the white
7: current mayor who <laughs> comes out of the building trades after telling a black candidate, a city right. councilor, not to run whose father actually spent most of his life, right. his late father, spent most of his life working to get people of color into those white building trades. I wonder if what your
3: thoughts are on that.
6: Uh, you, are, you are getting
3: into <laughs> the, the meatiness. Like, let me get home safely. <laughs> um, um, I think absolutely when we think about where the DNC is going, they cannot just play to the same playbook of, well, if we lost this, pers- this perceived white working class, then we just need to speak a language, speak the exact same language that our opponents did to them, um, about like, yeah, you know, we're really on you guys' side, yeah, there's this white coalition between us, and I, I actually think that's going to really sting them in the end if they take that route to it. You know, as far as you know, uh, uh, Boston local politics—it's a very interesting place to be in because it is one of the only towns in which the ladder is so up and down between the actual national DNC politics and like the actual municipal politics are entangled in national party politics in ways that you know other cities maybe don't experience because of the figures we have around here. Um, But yeah, I think that that is, you know, sort of uh, microcosmically. That gives you a lot of insight to okay. If that playbook worked for them, then we'll just replicate that playbook. And to be clear, that wasn't a playbook that the Republicans sort of originated. I mean, both parties have played that playbook, and, you know, it's immemorially, right? This, uh, but but we are we're not interrogating things like okay. So, but why have our unions been segregated? Know, we're not asking the sort of the question behind the question on those. Um yeah and and you know if Boston is is uh, uh is is unsure of its ability to have a black mayor, I think that says more about Boston than than uh, than than, than, than anything uh, thing else. Um yeah, but I would I would love
6: more of your insight. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. those are the white people I'm, I'm, I'm interested in talking to mm-hmm. because they, they changed history they gave us the first you know biracial mm-hmm. president Obama was mm-hmm. okay? both Karen I'm just being homeless <laughs> appreciate <laughs> you million of them mm-hmm. stay at home. Mm-hmm. If just the 10% of them would have voted, we, not, we would not mm-hmm. be stuck in a situation today with 7,8,700 mm-hmm. some more voters in three states didn't support Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton and we have Donald Trump in the rise of right. white nationalism. So right. I, I would prefer, I mean, my personal view, I, I choose home. And I think we have to go out there next year looking for those 8 to 9 million white voters right. but more importantly, find out how we can reach out to those 90 million Americans Whatever reason, didn't bother to vote or come out last That's the future, and that's where we want right. in the country. And I just want to say to the people this is one of the few states that have elected <coughs> an American statewide. I don't know your local politics, I, I'm in 0213. <laughs> <laughs>
1: To leave it, the one thing that I would also add, Donna's right. I'm biracial, so mm-hmm. I come uh, and I had written about Robert E. Lee because uh, related to him. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think part of, to me, this has been a great conversation. But I think part of, to me, what is was also important coming out of Charlottesville was uh, the coalition of people in Charlottesville who stood up against hate and stood up against white nationalism uh, and white supremacy and I hope that that continues uh, and, and in the same way in Boston as Tyler mentioned they were overwhelmed by there were more you know people against than, than for and it ended up being peaceful so my hope is that it, as we have conversations like this honest conversations like this and continue to put these issues on the table um, and sort of shine a light on what's going on that that actually helps to embolden people to stand up uh, against those movements. So please join me in thanking our panel.
0: You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.